Listen to better music and listen to music better. Welcome to True Tunes at 45 RPM, the short form version of the ongoing conversation you'll hear on the True Tunes podcast and in the digital pages at truetunes.com. And now your host, John J. Thompson. As we creep ever closer to our 100th episode, we thought it would be a fun idea to raid the vaults again to tempt you newcomers to explore the rabbit hole that is our three and a half year existence. On today's True Tunes at 45 RPM, we want to revisit a moment in time that is among a handful that changed the course of True Tunes as an entity, and it's fair to say had a profound personal effect on both Bruce and myself. Our story involves the release of two groundbreaking albums, one of which would help chart the future course of one of the most popular bands in rock history, and the other, well, in its own way, it would define the history of its makers as well. Our tour guide for this trip down memory lane is none other than Michael Rowe, leader of Northern California alternative group The 77s, a band who, in the spring of 1987, found its fortunes, or lack thereof, intimately tied to soon-to-be superstars U2. To assemble this special mini-episode, we dug up the original interview I recorded along with writer and director Chris White for the Electric Jesus podcast that Bruce and I produced. We featured an abridged conversation with Mr. Rowe on that show, but have gone back to the original recording and found some never-heard stuff specifically about this particular intersection. We also found some stuff that had been trimmed from my conversation with Dr. Love for the True Tunes podcast, and, well, Bruce handled the rest. You'll notice the audio difference between the two conversations recorded on different equipment at different times, but hey, you can handle that, right? I suppose you would have to go back to when we started and how we started. So in 1978, I had this very uh, profound cosmic experience with God and it blew my mind. It was, it was terrifying. And one part of that experience was being told to leave San Jose and go to Sacramento to this place, this church called Warehouse Ministries, 
which I'd known about. I'd visited there once, uh, several years prior, which was built around artists and musicians and hippies and, you know, people that were sort of on the fringe of the church. So right. when I was called to this place, I knew what it was, but I didn't want to go there. But obviously, there was something that I was supposed to do that was going to have some kind of effect on this church or the people that went to the church or whatever. And I didn't know what it was, but I knew that I had to do it. But oddly enough, this church did a lot of experimenting through the years. So we started having people like Larry Norman, all kinds of real cutting edge people. I was already familiar with being able to take sort of the church concept and, and expand it in order to have a, a good outreach and a relatability. What was impressive about the Warehouse Ministries in Sacramento is that it was made up of people that were just like me. They were musicians, artists, just wanted to take whatever talent they had and give it back to God and see what happened. When I first got there, they said, you know, we want to have a group, a music group that kind of represents what we're doing here. So they said, can we just scratch a bunch of guys together? And so Jan Voles was one of them. Mark Tootle was another guy. And then we got our drummer, Mark Proctor. So that became what was called the Scratch Band because we had just thrown it together from scratch. And we didn't have any original material yet, but Steve Scott was there, who was a resident artist in residence from England, poet, you know, he dabbled in film, and he, he was writing all kinds of cool songs. He had already been with Larry Norman, and Larry had recorded this whole album for him called Moving Pictures, which of course Larry never put out, right? So a good deal of our original material was Steve Scott songs that had been recorded for Larry Norman's label and never released. Gotta make my deadline You're with me in this game Just don't forget the name Tell your man to hold a headline I use you all as a step ladder, darling You know I'm only here for a ride to the top Making it home is the cream of the crop I got ambitions, I'll set my sights I just wanna see my name in Steve introduced me to so much great music from Europe and England and around the continent. He was one of the most incredibly hip, intelligent guys I'd ever met. And having him as a mentor was crucial at that time because he knew about U2 long before they were famous. I remember him playing, he handed me the boy album and said, listen to this, very interesting. Listen to the lyrics, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, I'm going, whoa, there's something going on there, isn't there, you know? And, and when October came out, he made me listen to that. He made me listen to XTC, made me listen to God knows, I mean, everything. I was having quite an influx of information. And all of that turned us from a band that was just the boys in the church, you know, advertising for the church, to serious artistes wanting to make some cool music for our own. We started writing our own songs. 
and uh, we did that first record, Ping Pong, which was sort of extremely evangelical because that's what we were doing. On the second album, we switched drummers and got Aaron Smith on drums, and he was coming into it playing already in a group called Romeo Void, and he'd had a, a real powerful musical pedigree that from the R&B world. So we were all in awe of him, and we didn't want him to leave or upset him. It's almost like we had to raise our standards so much higher to meet where he was in order to keep him around. And so that made the group better. And I think the All Fall Down album was our first attempt at trying to do something way better than what we've been doing for the last five years. songs were getting better, the songwriting was getting better. We were getting away from just doing the evangelistic thing to trying right. to just write pop songs that were good, that had some kind of content, something to think about. And I was starting to write more about myself, more personally. I started to notice that the more personal my songwriting got, the more response I got, the more heartfelt response I got. By then, I was married and I was having problems in my marriage and all kinds of challenges happening to me that these were things that nobody told me about that could happen. These were just things that started happening. And I and I went, I've got to write about this because if I don't, I'm, I'm going to go crazy. And so the music started to become a form of catharsis. And the more that happened, the more response I got from people that had bought the records and were, and were listening. And all of a sudden I realized that, wow, this, this is getting really serious. We are starting to get inside the fabric of people's lives and having an effect on choices they're making.
I just think we realized that, you know, if we were going to get anyone's ear, we had to be not just current, but really cutting edge. And, and it's certainly starting to see groups like U2 rise to the front of popular music. They were very good mentors for us as far as uh, seeing something done really well and having that high standard of excellence, trying to be better songwriters, better producers, make better sounds in the studio, uh, don't cut corners. So what we did was we just dug into our craft and we found a small group of very loyal people that followed us. Somehow it resonated with those people and we're grateful because here we are 40 years later, they're still tapped into it because it meant something to them. I think we ended up becoming, representing something far more than just good rock music. know that we've argued about this before um i think that the island album is one of the 10 great albums of all time i've i've been saying that and you you're not as big a fan of that record part of the reason why i'm so hard on it is because we had already cut demos for all those songs that we liked because they were just we hardly knew the songs when we cut the demos we did them loud and crude and very indie very rough you know with steve griffith engineering and I felt like we'd already made those statements when, you know, when Island hired sort of staff producer Robert Musso to fly out to Exit and try to re-record this stuff, he did a great job as far as getting it all very technically right and everything was balanced. But to me, it always, I already felt like we'd already spilt it. You know, the energy was gone. We were just trying to recreate something and get it all perfect. And so what I hear when I hear that record is extremely clean, not as much energy versus the crude demos we did with Griffith. And all of those are on the Sticks and Stones. You can hear what I'm talking about if you've, if you've got those, that CD. Right. All those demos have come out. And, and to me, I kind of go for things that are a little bit rougher, you know. So, you know, being on the inside of it, it colors it in a different way. As a kid, it was exciting to me for a couple of reasons. One is it was hard to find. In fact, I had my first job as a music buyer at a religious gift shop and i had to go buy copies of it at the mainstream store and then take them over and sell them at my store and i didn't make any profit on it but i just had to have that record on our shelves and i'd have to go uh find them sometimes in the religious section which and i'd take them out and i'd put them in the rock section and it was just like a project for those of us who were fans of that it was like this is so much bigger and more um crazy than what i was starting to hear that was called christian rock and then it was on the label that put out you too and you know uh, the mainstream hip cool indie kind of rock label
if it wasn't for you too, that island record would have been a smash hit, right? It's their fault, isn't it? No, no, no. Now that I want to, I want to dispel one of the biggest myths of all time, and that's that you two killed our career on Island. First of all, you two got bigger than Island could handle. Okay, Island was a boutique label, and the staff was barely thirty people. You know. When we went and toured their offices, there was no one there because they were all on the road with you two, desperately hanging on for dear life, trying to get the work done. That company couldn't even deal with that success. So, you know, we were ready to play ball, but Island just couldn't. It was not that they wouldn't, they couldn't. And, uh, but it definitely was great for getting like, the record review was great in Rolling Stone. We got Interview Magazine. I could call any number of nightclubs anywhere in the country and say, island recording artists coming through, give us a date. And we could get a date in all the prestigious clubs. I mean, it was, as far as the hip factor, it was incredible. I always feel sorry when people, I guess they, you know, maybe it makes them feel better to feel like, you know, it's we're a, their, it's a their little secret that you two ruin. And it's like, nothing could be further from the truth. Right. We didn't even feel that way at the time. really signed to Island directly. Island agreed to take on our label as a, a pressing and distribution deal because the guy that was the president of Island at the time, Lou Malia, had fallen in with Exit and uh, while he was working with us, Chris Blackwell called him and said, I need someone to be the president of Island. I can't deal with it. You know, I've got all this work I gotta do. So Lou said, I'll do it if you'll take this little gaggle of artists oh, from wow. Sacramento wow. and Chris said well who are they and he said there's just these great people you got to take them and so Chris was flying to Japan so on his way to Japan he stopped in San Francisco drove to Sacramento we took the whole church sanitized it to make it look like a business <laughs> you know <laughs> we, we carefully led him down the hallways and we all auditioned for him right Chris was reasonably impressed. In fact, he's, he called, I got to talk with him and he said, you guys need to be on the road. You're a great rock band. Just, you need to get out there and start just playing bars and everything you yeah, can do. Yeah. He canceled his trip to Japan, flew back to New York to drop the paperwork. But what Marion Lewis did not know is that basically what was written was a P&D deal, not an actual signing. Okay? They didn't read the contract close enough.
Norm Smith, we got a hold of the guy that was managing uh, Blue Oyster Cult and a few other people. And he was going to put together a tour for us, a whistle-stop tour to promote our record. Well, when he tried to get tour support from Ireland or even to get them to show up or help us with the radio interviews, anything, they were just gone because they all had to vacate their office in order to deal with the U2 thing. So our little record, our little band, and all the other excess stuff pretty much got, you know, left in the dust because there was just no way. As far as our selling records, the fan base we built up on Word are looking for our records. They're not there. They can't find them because they only press so many. Island was an interesting sort of left turn, but ultimately it w would not spell teenage stardom for us. This here is a story of my life, and uh, maybe uh, many of yours, too. It's a prodigal son, uh, as told by the Reverend Wilkins. Well, poor boy took his father's bread, started down the road. Started down the road, took all he had, started down the road. Going out in this world where God only knows, and that'll be the way to get along. Poor boy spent all he had, famine come in the land, famine come in the land, spent all he had, and famine come in the land. Believe I'll go find me some decent man That'll be the way to get along Well, the man said, give you a job For to feed my swine For to feed my swine Give you a job for to feed my swine The poor boy stood and hung his head and cried I grew up with a love for this music and a love for God. I didn't know how to combine them. I didn't know, you know, I had this vague idea in the back of my mind of what it would look like or feel like, but it, there was no real way to articulate it. And there was no way to combine them without soiling yourself with the world. And so when I had this cosmic experience with God in the late 70s, what that led to was a was a directive, a direct, not a command, but a, you know, get thee out into a place where I'm going to show you, right? It was very Old Testament, very biblical. But once I finally followed that directive from God, the world started to open up. And as it did, I started, I met Peacock, I met Abeg, I dragged Griffith up from San Jose. This exit thing happened. Before I knew it, I had hundreds if not thousands of friends. For me it became a full-time obsession occupation that was linked to a spiritual uh, directive or a, or a calling if you will. It's like I had to understand what that meant. There was no roadmap. There was no well, you know, I know that if I go up there that that I'm going to do this that or the other. I didn't know anything. All I knew that I was was that I was to show up and and tell these people what happened to me. Right, I spent decades trying to figure out. Well, what am I? What does this mean? Am I a pastor or a Christian? Am I a mystic? Am I a 
you know, then I, at some point I decided, well, my calling is to be an artist and that's very serious, right? And then I thought, well, maybe I'm a priest, you know, but I don't know it, you know. Maybe I'm both, maybe it's somewhere in between. And the only thing I've been able to go on is the response I get from individuals. You know, in the 80s they wrote letters, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of letters. Eventually those letters turned to emails and then the emails turned to private messages on Facebook and other social media. The one consistent thing that I've gleaned from all of that communication is a huge thank you because, and then you can fill in the blanks, either I was, I was confused about my faith, I didn't know what I believed, this gave me a place to live it out or be myself authentically, right? To be me, not some person in a church that's being squeezed into a mold by their church community. The other thing would be something like, I was pregnant, I was going to abort my child. I heard your pretty baby, I didn't abort. Here's the photograph, here's my kid. This kid lives because of that song. I mean, I don't even like to touch that because when that stuff happens, all I can do is stand back and just go, praise God, I marvel at this because I had nothing to do with it. All I did was have a little bucket of water that I just carried, you know. That's all it was. I just, I had the tools, I had my pencil, I had a guitar. So when I see all that stuff going on, I just, I just go, okay, now I understand what this was all about. I, I needed to play music and I, and I wanted to write songs. I wanted to be a good guitar player and a good songwriter and a good singer, you know. And, and I managed to do all of those good at times and other times struggling. But the spiritual aspect of it happens alongside. It's, a, it's the space in between being an artist or being a, a guitar player, whatever, and God out there working in people's lives and the stuff somehow gets to them and it makes a connection and makes a change. It's like, that makes sense to me. I can't, I don't want to take credit for it and I don't want to touch it. That's God's work.
We hope you've enjoyed this little romp through the vaults. We'll have more shows like this and some new interviews coming soon. But of course, you don't have to wait for us. We've got a shelf full of episodes waiting for you to discover. Thanks to Chris White from the Electric Jesus film for letting us tap into his vault. And if you have not seen Electric Jesus, well, I'm not sure we can really fully be friends until you do. Last I heard, it was streaming free on Tubi with ads, or you can pay a few bucks to see it on any number of paid services. And if you missed our conversations with Chris White and the cast of the film, make sure to check those out as well. And of course, Michael Rowe has been on the podcast, and you can check all of that stuff in the archives anytime. run out groove is coming and that means it's time to go if you dig the show please subscribe and spread the word also please leave us a review and a rating at apple Podcasts. subscribe to our email list at truetunes.com follow us on facebook at truetunes now and find and follow our weekly spotify gallery stage mixtape you can find me on twitter at john j thompson and on instagram at the only jjt and at truetunes music and you can support the show through our patreon.com slash truetunes community or via a one-time tip linked on the show notes page there's also some some sweet swag available at truetunes.threadless.com. Tell your friends about the show, post it on your socials, and let us know what you think. Thanks. True Tunes at 45 RPM is produced by John J. Thompson and Bruce A. Brown for Gyroscope Productions and is intended for the private use of our listening audience. The contents are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. Thanks for listening. Cheers. We'll see you next time. Mm